Once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm very mad. <laughs> Just, I think I wrote down three different times in my notes, I'm so mad about the Poseidon Adventure. Hi, I'm Jackson. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I mean, on one hand, your name is useful, but also being mad about the Poseidon Adventure is just as much as of a demarcator of who you are as a person. You're not wrong. There's a Twitter bot that's just uh, today's gender, so like today's gender is, is exhausted. Today's gender is lip balm or whatever. Today's gender is being mad at the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> a film from 1972. <laughs> Yeah, so that's what we're talking about. Because it'd be at Waterworld, and so now it's into round two. We're talking about Poseidon Adventure versus Hotel Transylvania 3. Yes. Both these movies, interestingly, explore the themes of cruise ships being not really boats, but just hotels with a prow and a stern. I mean, that's kind of what cruise ships are. Yeah. <clears throat> Should also mention that these are the oldest and most recent films on our bracket, respectively. So there's like a 46-year age gap between the two. Wow. That's, that's pretty high up there as far as our brackets are concerned. We typically don't get into too many films from the 70s just because of how we seed our brackets by uh, domestic gross. Occasional stuff will slip through because it's a legacy film. Like, mm-hmm. that happened with the Disney bracket a lot. But a lot of things, especially in round two, don't usually come from that far back. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff just doesn't really hold up mm-hmm. over time. Not universal, but it's pretty common for things to just not be all that good, even if they were culturally impactful. We literally talked about this in the very first episode of our podcast where we relegated Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in round one. We have a friend who's still mad at us about that. (laughs) She is welcome to come on and make arguments to the contrary. That's fair. But anyway, let's go ahead and talk about brackets that we've done in this decade. Right. Wow, sorry. The weight of time fell (laughs) crashing down upon me. So, yeah, I talk about that I'm very mad at the Poseidon Adventure, and I am. Because, like, on this watch through, knowing what was going to happen to Linda and Belle, I was struck by how vibrant and real these characters felt to me and how much I cared about them as people and how mad I am that they didn't survive the movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that on some level, that's not inherently a mark against the film if it makes me care that much about someone. Mm -hmm. But it bothers me that, like, the two vibrant women die and their less vibrant men folk don't. Uh, Manny Rosen is fine, but Detective Rogo is just... Ugh. So we have four female characters in The Survivors. We have Belle Rosen, the grandmother with her husband on her way to see their new grandson. We have Linda Rogo, who is Detective Rogo's wife and a former sex worker. Then we have Nuni, who is... The singer from the band that was playing the New Year's Eve party, um, she and she lost her brother in the initial upturning, and is not doing okay. And then we have Susan, who is Robin's older sister and kind of caretaker, because they are... I don't know exactly know where their parents are. They get a letter from their parents mm. for New Year's, but it the film never goes into what that whole situation is like. Yeah. I'm wondering if like, their parents were in business or whatever, and so they had to like go on ahead yeah. faster somewhere. Yeah, and the way it breaks down is we have two very passive female characters and two much more active female characters. And unfortunately, the two active female characters are the ones who die. Yeah, it sucks a lot. Susan has agency to her, but a lot of her agency is wanting to be in a place as opposed to actively doing a thing. Mm-hmm. Which is fair. Like She's also like a child. I mean, not like a child child, but she's still pretty young. I get that she would be maybe less hardened to the world and all that jazz. Yeah, she's between the ages of 
16 and 18. Yeah. Roughly. Mm -hmm. She's a typical CW protagonist. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned that, and then I need to bring up the weird relationship she has with the priest. Yeah, there's as much of an age gap there as there is between this and Hotel Transylvania 3. Like, the film doesn't make it, like, explicitly, like, romantic or sexual, but it seems really weird, especially because the way they personify Gene Hackman's character in this is, like, the priest who fucks. Like, not, not literally, but that's... That's the idea that it's trying to give you. Like, he's this rebel who's trying to change the church and doesn't give a shit about authority. <laughs> it's kind of that thing, and you also see this with Nooney and uh, Red Button's character, where movies will kind of pair a male character with a woman, and even if it isn't explicitly romantic, there is still that implication for those who want to read it in there to make sure there's a case of the not gays. I think there's less of a problem with this preacher because he doesn't have that, like, queer energy that Red Buttons is bringing to not a super stealthy portrayal there. I can still see how someone felt like there, he needed a love interest, but all the other women were either paired up or, you know, emotionally traumatized already. So mm-hmm. it would have been honestly worse if he and Nuni were like a thing. She is too emotionally traumatized to have any kind of romantic things happening with her right now. Yeah. Like, honestly, I was a little bit weirded out by how deep the movie implied things with Nooney and what is that character's actual name? Uh, Mr. Martin. Mr. Martin, yeah. And there's a huge age gap there. Nooney's emotionally compromised and it also just, Mr. Martin is just, they threw every single closeted gay trope at him possible? Yeah. Like, it is very clear to me as someone who watched a lot of British comedies from the 70s, like what this character is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I get it. It's the 70s. What you could and you could not show was complicated. I think that with very minor alterations to some dialogue and maybe like some of the age things, you could make it seem more like he's a guy who wanted kids but never had them because of whatever reason you want to imply there. And she's kind of being a surrogate daughter to him. That mm-hmm. could almost work. But mm-hmm. yeah. Also, probably work better with um, him and Susan. But as if, yeah. yeah. I will say that while the movie is probably pretty fun, a lot of the sequences are just kind of this group going through the same obstacle again and again. Mm-hmm. And that can get a little bit repetitive. I think you could have maybe used maybe one last or had some point where they like split off and had to recombine something. Mm-hmm. Like we do get a little bit of that splitting and then recombining, but it's in this awful plot cul-de-sac where nothing happens. We're mm-hmm. kind of just waiting. Yeah. They try and ha- have a few more like character building scenes like we did at the beginning of the film, but I just don't think they work. Mm-hmm. I think if the group had just split and half of them went up to the front with the other passengers and were crushed by a wave and had to come back, that would have been more tense, more exciting. What Maybe it would have brought like a new character from that group in to liven up the ensemble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Maybe lost somebody in there. I think that would have been a better way to do it. like Especially if you... You have a certain, we need to kill off this many people from the survivor party. That's an easier way to do it than just have Linda Roga fall off. Yeah, the, the ship rattled so much that she failed her dexterity save. Yeah. I'm, it fell into fire? Boiling water something? I don't know. It's She fell through smoke and, and flame, uh, fighting her enemy all the way down. Like, well, they sent her back. That part of the film is so hard to watch because we've... We've just lost Belle Rosen, one of the best characters in the movie, mm-hmm. for such bullshit reasons. And 
that's already also after the whole plot cul-de-sac, and so my interest is super low at this point. And then they kill off Linda, and she's like, why, why bother finishing the movie? Mm-hmm. I guess completion at that point, but yeah. It's so weird. Like, I, don't know if, I don't care what the writing choice was there. Like, I totally get having like a big, impactful death in you know kind of a two-thirds point of your film. That's perfectly reasonable. That's a pretty common thing. Lots of stuff do it. My first thoughts mm-hmm. are... Aragon and uh, Power Rangers 2017, so that's who I am as a person. But it doesn't make sense to then have Linda also die off there for no reason beyond mm-hmm. just pathos. That's a character being fridged where Belle Rosen is less of that. That is her own choices there. Yeah. I think the reasons that I am mad about Belle Rosen is because we get to see a fat woman being heroic, which is something that we just never see. It never happens. And then she gets punished severely for it yeah and we see it occasionally but it's almost always as like like a joke or a, or a gag or whatever mm-hmm. and she's not just a fat woman she's a a fat old jewish woman like that is a variety of people who don't get to be heroes and things mm-hmm. yeah. i think you were sad about this last time too but honestly i can just keep being sad about this for hours yeah <laughs> welcome to the being sad about bill rosen podcast i'm yeah. your host Jeff Neffin. and at least bell rosen kind of like has an arc to her character at the beginning of the film, she doesn't think she can survive and make... Like, she doesn't even think she can make it up the Christmas tree, and she's able to do that. And she keeps preemptively thinking she can't do it because of her size. Mm-hmm. And then she is able to save one of the most physically capable members of the group of survivors. Mm-hmm. So, like, Belle at least has an arc. Linda Rogo doesn't. No. She, like, she doesn't have any sort of character growth, her relationship with her husband it doesn't really change she's just kind of snarky and wants to survive and then she dies mm-hmm. and i feel like the arc is so easy in there just to have that roto be like oh um i need to protect you i'm i'm the strong man and have her be like capable and more of a survivor than him and have him come to realize her value as an autonomous agent that could have worked really well but it's not in there yeah <sighs> Let's talk about a thing I really do like. The sequence from the ship capsizing to the door closing as the banquet hall is flooding is incredibly good. Like, I think mm-hmm. just that you could watch as like a, here we're going to analyze a scene for a class. We're going to look at different points of growth. We're going to look at how the camera is giving attention to different characters. All this stuff. It's, it's a really strong sequence that I think is probably the highlight of the movie for me. Mm. A lot of disaster films or horror films, you get that scene where you have this huge group of people crammed up together and there is tension about what the next step is. Mm -hmm. This is one of the ones that is very masterfully done. Like, they do a really good job of setting the stage, making this huge banquet hall feel claustrophobic because Mm -hmm. everything is literally flipped on its head. Right. And the lighting is just good for that because you know lights are on the ground now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything just feels off because it physically is off. Mm-hmm. We have the tension with the purser is like, I want you all to stay where you are. Help will be here any minute. This ship is equipped with watertight compartments. So just remain calm. As if there's protocol for a ship being trapped upside down. <laughs> I mean, you probably should have few disaster protocols if you were on a boat... Yeah, and you know, then we've got the, the scrappy team of survivors like... We're cut off from the rest of the world. They can't get to us. Maybe we can get to them. You've said enough, but get out of the way. Pray for us, but don't do this. Gliding to another deck will kill you all. And sitting on our butts is not going to help us either. 
Maybe by climbing out of here we can save ourselves. We are in the middle of this boat. <laughs> we need to be not in the middle of the boat. One thing I think is really interesting and plays in with Reverend Scott's character is people suggest using linens from the kitchens to make rope ladders to climb because no, no, it's not going to be strong enough. We use, need to use the Christmas tree, which is something that only one person can use at a time. It falls over later and no one even tries making rope ladders after they have the Christmas tree up. So less people can be saved because Reverend Scott is so focused on the idea that you, you can't use soft things for survival. You have to use hard, strong things. I think it's a really interesting manifestation of his character flaw that I think is kind of unpacked later when you have Belle Rose and this very soft lady, you know, saving him in this crisis scenario. And I wish someone had called him out more on that, on his letting more people not get up there because he didn't allow for this alternate option that wasn't his. There's that. I also just, in general, wish more people called out Reverend Scott and specifically people who aren't Detective Rogo. Yeah. Who kind of has his own troubles. <laughs> yeah. Part of the reason that I just am not willing to give this film a lot of credit, even though I really enjoy the first half and the second half is just terrible decision after terrible decision, is because I fucking hate Reverend Scott as a character. He's such an asshole. Mm -hmm. And the film lionizes him so much. Mm -hmm. I think there is a better version of that character that would really only require some small tweaks to the writing and plotting. Mm -hmm. Like him sacrificing himself for the others is cool, but it's still... Not really a growth arc for him. It's still him being like the strong one. I'm going to, you know, outdo God of the sea themselves. Yeah. I think at some point for perspective, I want to watch the like, I think it's like 2006 remake yeah. called Poseidon. Um, I know they changed quite a bit. Like, I think it's Kurt Russell as God. the main character and he's FDNY and it's like the ship doesn't capsize. It's like terrorists. Yep. Because it's, it's 2006. Right. That's where we're at. Like, I'd like to see some of the changes and differences they've made in that version compared to this one. Mm -hmm. And there is a version, like a slant-wise version, where the protagonist is someone who utterly refuses to leave anybody behind. Like, he's very driven by the idea of making sure that everyone makes it out okay and goes back for, for them when, when he can, which is, I think, a, a choice that makes that character much more sympathetic, even though he has this kind of, like, no, we're going to push through mentality. Mm -hmm. He's like, we're going to push through for everyone who can't. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if he had been much more interested about saving absolutely everyone, then I wouldn't have as many problems as I do with the timing of the banquet hall flooding. Mm -hmm. I think with the way the film is now, I, like I talked about this the last time, you need more time as opposed to, okay, we've got our main cast. Now we can just flood the room and kill everyone. Mm -hmm. We're going to blue brothers this. Mm -hmm. Although I will say the shot of him closing the door slowly as he watches people flood beneath him is... Really good. Like that is a that honestly should be up there with other gr like great not quite horror but like moments of characters experiencing horror. Yes. As it were. Yeah, I, I do think that shot is very good. I just wish that there was a little bit more time because it just it feels like one after the other and it feels very we got to keep the plot moving sort of pacing mm -hmm. like if you had maybe our main cast dealing with the fire door and all that jazz and then we have like one scene with like the older priest and purser or someone else down there you know like maybe halfway through it gets flooded yeah oh um one bit that i do really like that i, that I wrote down was again bell rosen trying to talk to reference scott him not listening her telling him to hold his breath to see how long he, uh he can hold it and then her just talking at him now that he can't talk I'm like <laughs> nice tell mr scott how long can you hold your breath 
Can you hold your breath? I don't know. Hard, do me a favor, please. Try it now. Mr. Rogo, time him. Go ahead. Mr. Scott, look at this. Look! One character I do want to talk about is Robin, because I think my opinion of that character changed the most throughout the film. Hmm. When Robin's first introduced, it's just like, oh, we get a child actor in the 70s. How, how fun. <laughs> uh, because for the most part, child actors are notoriously bad. It's not until recently we have had the infrastructure in place to train children in acting to a degree where they're able to hold scenes by themselves. Yeah. There's some unfortunateness that's gone with that with the exploitation of child labor, but I I don't want to get into that here. Mm -hmm. But Robin avoids that by stepping out of the limelight most of the time until the group needs very specific knowledge about the engineering of the boat. Mm -hmm. And he has, I think, just really one scene that is, like, very acting heavy, and it's him apologizing to Belle Rosen where... Mr. Rosen, I didn't mean it to sound the way it did. When I told you about Dad's 600-pound swordfish, I didn't want you to think I meant that you weighed that much. With everything that's happening to us, that's what you're worried about? Sure, what else? And even that scene is great. Like, like he's like, oh, this kid is just a sweet kid. I, I want him to be okay. Like, I actively wanted Robin to be okay. And even though, I mean, he's a kid. They're probably not going to, like, drown this child. Mm. Noticeably, he and uh, Susan are the only kids in that banquet hall that we see. Yep. Like, that scene of him apologizing is just a really sweet little moment that they didn't really have to include. Mm-hmm. It just it makes you like him a little bit more. Yeah. It also contrasts really nicely with the fight that he and his sister have in their suite earlier, mm-hmm. where Robin has a kind of growth, realizes they can't be such a petulant child. Mm-hmm. If you knew it's more from Robin's perspective and had him kind of realizing he needs to step up uh, because things are dying and he can't be a kid anymore, that could be a really like stressful but good film. Mm-hmm. I realize it's just kind of Love of Treasure Island, <laughs> you know, as it were. I don't know, like, Jim Hawkins is such a passive character in Muppet Treasure Island. I mean, I guess kind of, yes. Whatever, I just I just want to watch Muppet Treasure Island. I can't watch Twitter. I love Muppet Treasure Island. It's a great film. It's just like, it's not necessarily a fault of the film. It's just that they put their focus on literally any other character possible. That's true. To be fair, you have, like, all these incredibly vibrant, strong puppets around you, like Gonzo, Miss Piggy, Tim Curry... You really can't. <laughs> it's hard to only like, hold your own as a child actor there. Yeah. I, I think that's another reason why it's a little weird is because typically Muppets work best when you have one human replacement character. And this one has two with Long John Silver and Jim Hawkins. They're planning on splitting that character into Jim and Hawkins, who would be played by Gonzo and Rizzo. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, mm, this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the Wii got mm-hmm. off on a tangent there. I mean, still relevant to the bracket because boats. That's true. Why didn't that make it onto, the, onto this bracket? Apart from, I guess, money. <laughs> Why are you willing to spend money on one of the best films of the era? <laughs> Mainstream America. Circling back a little bit to uh, talking about like shots of horror in non-horror movies, the kind of lumberingness of the second group of passengers they find that are walking towards the front that are going to want to drown feels like a parade of the dead being led to the hereafter that you might encounter in like a movie set at Halloween or whatever. Like, I have this kind of eerie vibe to it with the lighting and the the shamblings of the characters oh, yeah. and I like that a lot yeah honestly had this film been released a little bit later I would have thought that there would have been some Dawn of the Dead influence there with like their just kind of slow death march trudge mm, I can see it 
But speaking about horror and boats, why don't we go ahead and switch over to our other film this week, Hotel Transylvania 3, Summer Vacation. Which takes place almost entirely at night. It's interesting. It makes sense. They're monsters. Yeah. Well, are they? I'm going to just go right into my horrible revelation that I have of watching this. This this isn't really a monster movie. This is an X-Men movie. You're not wrong. Like, these are... A bunch of humanoid people who have unusual powers and abilities who just want to be left alone and kind of just want to chill in their own spaces but aren't allowed to because humanity hates them for no real reason. And they're being attacked by a robot version of a literary character with an evil music motif that lets them be destroyed by a giant kraken in Atlantis, which sounds like any given issue of a Claremont issue of X-Men. For real. I think that's... Partially just because it's monster content made for children. That's mostly the way that that subgenre has shifted is there's much more focus on the monsters because the monsters are the cool part. Right. And monsters are a very easy way to talk about humanity and otherness. I mean, Del Toro does it for adults. Oh, yeah, for sure. I will definitely say it doesn't really touch on that all that much. The Hotel Transylvania franchise is much more about family and healing from emotional wounds of the past. Mm-hmm. And people being very stressed out about miscegenation. <laughs> um, there's lip service paid to the othering and bigotry aspects, but in general, the franchise just kind of treats it like set dressing. This is a truth that we have to assume about the world in order for this to work. Mm-hmm. I think that we are the wrong audience for this because kids probably aren't going to be that concerned about that. Kids are probably going to just enjoy the wackiness and not dig too deep into the weird race politics of this film. But we are the kind of people who can't not do that. Yeah. I will also really admit that Gendy Tarkovsky is not the sort of creator who's really concerned with that. Mm. Uh, that's just not his priority. And I don't necessarily want to fault him for that, but unfortunately that disinterest has led to some problematic things in his work. Yeah. I think that's kind of part of the trouble is these elements are incidental and just kind of, they're either assumed or, well, I guess that would happen, as opposed to thinking about what it would be like for that to happen and have the story grow out of that. Mm -hmm. There is a flip side to it where I do at least appreciate the lip service paid as opposed to something like the Netflix children's content for like the the super monsters like they put one out every holiday. Oh yeah. I have unfortunately been subjected to a few of them and there's barely even any lip service paid to that. Like the monsters are just kind of accepted and it's just it feels so weird because the world building doesn't make sense with that assumption. Right. They're monsters as a category, not as the social thing where the monster is the demarcation of the barrier of what humanity is. Again, like children aren't going to notice this. That series is geared at even younger children, like three and four year olds. I don't expect much of a deep dive into the monster and the other in something like that. It's mostly for parents to toss on so the, the children will be entertained for 45 minutes. And broadly, monsters in this context. The idea of the universal monster, although in that case it's a little bit more of a drift, is much like any other given superhero thing where you have these very recognizable archetypes that you can sell toys of. Yeah. And I, I have two different thoughts I want to go into. Do I, Should we go into Zootopia or Paranorman? Let's end with Paranorman because I'm a su- Paranorman is good and Zootopia is 
complicated. Yes. Like, there are parts about Zootopia that I like. We have an episode on it. You can check it out. I think it's, like, episode 14 of our Disney bracket. Yeah, I think about right. So, I bring that up because it sounds like a kind of when Hotel Transylvania as a franchise dig more into monstrousness and the race parallel that it's kind of getting into, or, or at least the otherness parallel, whatever. Yeah, prejudice. Prejudice, yeah. But that's kind of what Zootopia was trying to do, and and I think we had a problem with how it didn't do a good job of it. So it could be that this is kind of an unwinnable scenario. I mean, there are a lot of obstacles and pitfalls that you can run into when you are talking about this subject. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that fear of failing should be a reason to, to avoid engaging. That's true. And looking at Paranorman as kind of my alternate take on that, because I think it does a pretty good job of exploring fear and prejudice of someone who's different in a way that does feel valid and resonant without overstepping or having a metaphor that falls through. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about Paranorman is that the monsters are both the persecutors and the persecuted. Mm-hmm. And specifically those that have happened in the past. And we now get these modern characters who are going through and unpacking what happened and trying to make the best of it and trying to right the wrongs of their ancestors. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably part of why it works so well. I think when you're dealing with a heavy subject like persecution or violence or that kind of thing, you kind of have to have persecution or violence or whatever be the thing from whence it all grows and let that be the thing that you're really digging into. Otherwise, it winds up having to be tacked on instead of being the, the basis, the cornerstone. Yeah. Circling back to Zootopia, I do want to talk a little bit about that because I do think in certain ways it was a good exploration of prejudice. And I specifically talked about this in the episode. Their problem was doing a analog for racism without having people of color on the creative team with like with the story and directing it. Mm-hmm. I think it works much better as a call out of uh, misogyny. Mm-hmm. Between how Judy Hopps is treating it and how Bellwether is treated, I think that was a much more logical and to a certain degree safe direction to go in and i think the film would have been more successful on that thematic level if it had stayed in its own lane yeah doing both and doing both kind of in an intermixed way fell through a bit yeah yeah i think that the reason that like things like zootopia and hotel transylvania fall through where things like paranormal and i also like thinking about uh, frozen in the back of my mind are that those are dealing with specific discrete instances as opposed to broad social constructs that exist beyond the characters we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times movies made, you know, for the mainstream dealing with racism and other forms of prejudice treat it as a few bad actors you have to deal with and then it goes away. Mm -hmm. And when you have a very close circle of it's only this one kid and this one kid from the past or when it's just like, you know, this one lady with ice powers, then the problem is localized to only a few people and the culture around them and not like an entire subgroup of people within that culture. Mm. It's also weird to be criticizing the third in the franchise for this without really talking about the first one. And I was going to watch the other two to get ready for this, but then I watched The Untamed on Netflix instead. I, I think the first film deals with it much more directly because the first film you have a human character who is invading the safe space for monsters. Mm. Not necessarily intentionally, but that's just kind of what is going on and navigating that. 
But this is the third in a children's franchise that they have found a formula that works and really at this point they're not really saying anything new. They are pumping them out for children's consumption. Yeah. We can get into selling out and everything like that, but I really just don't want to have that conversation. So they have found a formula and it works and they are continuing to pump out new content to acquire new fans as new people age into their target demographic. There is nothing abysmally wrong with the Hotel Transylvania series and not even specifically three. It's pretty much exactly what I would expect from this sort of thing. It's not really objectionable, but it's also not really groundbreaking. It has its own little personal flares because that's what the creators care about. Yeah. Let's calm down a bit from some of the more heavy, like, thinking spaces that we're in and talk about how the Invisible Man is naked for this whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's... I mean, he's on vacation. Yeah, but no, well, I guess the slime is. I don't know. The, I mean, is the mummy naked the whole time? I, no, he's wearing wraps. He's... Unnaked. But he also wears trunks on top of those wraps at some point during the films. Oh, now it's weird. <laughs> I swear, man. I, I don't want like that. I mean, trans guys who wear like pretty full binders, but also then tank tops over those. Mm-hmm. So it's the same kind of principle, really. <laughs> I know. It's just like a weird thing to notice that, you know, it's a kid's film. Like, I also want to praise a few things. Like, there's a shuffleboard scene on the ship, and instead of, like, the normal little scoring section, it's, like, a crime scene outline. Yeah. I thought that was a great one-off joke. Um, I also want to praise Dracula's Hawaiian shirt game. It's on point. <laughs> You're not wrong. I do love the little guy of him, like, popping the collar, because mm-hmm. Dracula, that's... It was fun and cute. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm a little sad by, but also maybe it's in other films more... Both Dracula and Vlad, his dad, get to kind of have these, like, scary vampire moments. But Mavis doesn't really. She occasionally gets to be a little bit intimidating, but she doesn't, like, get to have, like, a scary vampire face. I can't recall if there are any instances in the previous films, but, yeah, her anger is always more, like, she's mom angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hands your hips kind of, go to your room anger as opposed to, you know, like, I will eat the soldier's children kind of anger. Yeah. There's definitely a gender element there. Like, I, I wish you guys would have heroic women who are still scary in things. Yeah. Especially things for kids. Yeah. Unfortunately, Tarkovsky, his record as far as writing women and all that is not great. Um, I dropped the fifth season of Samurai Jack, one of my favorite cartoon series ever because of his handling of that. So I remember that time. I remember the, the, the dark cloud that hung over your head for a year and a day. <laughs> Uh, I do like Mavis as a character. She's pleasant and and sweet, mm-hmm. but also she's kind of like the like token woman in this cast, apart from uh, Erica Van Helsing, yeah. who is kind of the contrast to her. And there's mm-hmm. some troubles there. But then again, the one scene where she's like telekinetically holding Erica up in the air and it seems to be very painful to her is interesting in that it's like most of the violence in the film is kind of like wacky cartoon violence. That feels actual like this is causing pain violence and it's mm. weird to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, not bad, but just, I'm just intrigued by how Mavis is normally very sweet, but she's the most pain-causing character in the film that I noticed. I think as far as Mavis getting to be a... getting the spotlight, I think the first film is probably... has the best examples because that is all about her and Johnny falling in love mm-hmm. and Drac learning to let go of his daughter and let her grow up after the death of his wife. Mm. 
So the first film focuses quite a bit on Mavis and the other films not quite as heavily. Yeah. Uh, the second film is much more focused on her and Johnny's son, uh, whose name escapes me. Dennis. Dennis Rich. Yeah. And you know, and then this film is much more focused on Drag and Erica. Mm-hmm. Oh god, I keep forgetting the dog. I hate my dog so much. <laughs> Say hi, Bob. Hi, Bob. I don't really understand why, but like, I just I give it as there for humor. The humor isn't working for me, therefore I despise it. I mean, it's very. I don't want to say juvenile humor, but the humor is mostly like, haha, it's a giant dog in a coat. It's very. It doesn't feel new and fresh. I feel like we're not exploring new territory. It's, it's not like, it's not monstrous. It's just a big dog. Clifford is the same concept. Yeah. Like it, if it was like a dragon or something where like you were like having fun with the potential of this creature that can release in this world, that'd be mm-hmm. different, but. It's not clever in any way. It's just, here's a weird situation that children are going to laugh at. Mm-hmm. And this film has shown that it has the ability to tell really complicated layered jokes that are going to be funny on multiple levels. The Gremlins. We love the Gremlin air. Yeah. The the Gremlins. We talked about the Chupacabra last episode as well. The shuffleboard thing. Yeah. Yeah. And because they have this joke that is just very unsubtle, unclever, and they reuse it multiple times. Mm-hmm. I understand your frustrations with it. For me, it's just like, it's kind of par for the course for a movie like this. Sure. And as someone who watches probably less kids' films than you, I think, I have less of a like thick skin about things like that. It's, mm-hmm. again, this is very out of my genre. So if you're listening to this, like, wow, they're being really harsh, you're probably right. I'm not good with kids. Don't let me raise your children. <laughs> My child rearing skills are showing up when they're 16, helping them skip town to go to a party, and then leaving again, never to be heard from. One last thing I wanted to praise the film for is I really enjoy the visual contrast between Drac and Erica. We have Dracula in his his cape and suit is black and red, and we have Erica who is in her jumpsuit and white, the blonde hair, the blue eyes. Mm-hmm. It works well on a visual level especially in action scenes where they're together it's thematically appropriate it makes the scenes very readable very good character design mm-hmm. it's just doing that really good tango sequence where they're evading all the traps in the atlantis sequence the that looks really good it plays out really well it's fun to watch um, i think that color contrast really helps with that yeah mm-hmm. Incredible. You've seen the other ones. Does Frankenstein's monster's whole thing of being afraid of fire come up in those? Is that like an arc? Okay, cool. Yeah. I, I was going to say, like, they mentioned him being afraid of fire at the start of the film. That doesn't really go anywhere, but I guess that's a callback. So. It's usually a small flame shows up in a scene, and then he just starts destroying everything around him, trying to get away. Sure. Like, it, it's it's a reference to, you know, the, the Frankenstein film. and It's kind of a part of a broader trouble I have with the film where there's... A few like minor like sub threads like the fire bad, the parents having too many kids or whatever, where there could be an arc there, but there isn't really one. There's just it's just a gag that doesn't really go anywhere. It's like doesn't really get resolution. It's not necessarily the nature of kids' movies, but because of how these films are structured, like scene to scene, the film isn't always very connected. It's kind of jumping perspectives quite a bit. And it's uh, we need a joke here. This is a easy one that we can kind of build out of. Mm-hmm. And when you have a franchise like this, it's kind of hard to have characters grow and evolve because 
if they change, then you have to have more context for them in the future. And that would make it harder to like pump out more of them. Yes. So, yeah, I get it. That's that's always the problem with franchises like this is if you change your, your characters too much, it's not as easy for someone to just jump in in, you know, the third or fourth iteration down the line. Mm-hmm. Whereas if all of your characters remain relatively static, then you can watch the films out of order. It doesn't really matter. Right. I think part of our problem with this is this film's commercial success is a major component of why it is structured the way it is. Mm-hmm. And we don't see that as often in other films. Like On a certain level, all films are made to be commercially viable. This one, it's a much bigger priority because it's a franchise, because it's specifically targeting children. Unfortunately, that's just unfortunately how children's media works. Uh-huh. And it's very apparent when you start picking it apart. Mm-hmm. A lot of the films that we talk about are often either the first in a series or are meant to be standalone, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this is a very different beast. It's also a kid's film, so it's very different from other stuff. Yeah. yeah. So kind of it's hard to compare and contrast these movies that are so far apart in their scope and intention and audience and time of production and method of production. Although one way we can compare them is the Ship of Theseus Award. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the boat from Poseidon Adventure is more wrecked. It explodes a few times. Yeah, it explodes a few times. It's flipped upside down. They have to cut a hole in the hull in order to save people. Mm -hmm. It was also on its way to be salvaged. Yeah. Even if the film did not have the disaster in it, that ship was not surviving. No. Whereas Legacy does fine. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I do think we have to give the ship, ship of Theseus award to the legacy because it survives. Yeah. Uh, there's also a lot more of it. But again, the boat is comically large. Right, which that works for me. That was fine. Yeah. Honestly, not that much of the movie takes place on the boat. A decent chunk, but like a lot of it takes place uh, in Atlantis as well. Yeah, in Atlantis or like on the island pit stop. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. Like, I'm not yeah. disqualifying it from our bracket, but... There are some films that hold better to the on-a-boat nature of our bracket than others. Mm-hmm. Like, you could argue Hunt for October doesn't quite fit because they're moving between boats quite a bit. Parts of the Caribbean has a lot of time spent on islands. Yeah. I, I think all of the films that we've chosen for our bracket do have enough time spent there that I'm not going to quibble about it. And I don't think our listeners are either. Oh, I heard some quibbles. I heard people going, why aren't you going into space? They're basically just boats in the stars. Which, y'all are right, but we had to limit it somewhere. We can't do Captain Phillips versus The Force Awakens. What do you want from us? Yeah, if, if we included starships on this bracket, the way the bracket looks would be very different. Yeah, a lot more lens flare. <laughs> but speaking of how the bracket looks, what is going to be going ahead? It's kind of a hard choice, actually. It is a hard choice. So here are my thoughts. Hotel Transylvania 3 is a very safe movie. It doesn't really take a whole lot of risks. And by and large, it's unobjectionable. Mm-hmm. Poseidon Adventure starts off very strong. It takes some risks. It does some interesting things. But on a whole, it makes some huge stumbles in the second half and leave a, quite a bad taste in my mouth. So... I can have a similar thing where in Hotel Transylvania, I don't feel a lot about it. It is there. Mm-hmm. I put it on like while I was cleaning earlier because I was like, I can just tur- turn away for a bit and not really miss much. Whereas mm-hmm. the Poseidon Adventure makes me angry, but I feel very passionately because of it. And yeah. Is there an argument that art that makes you feel things, even negative emotions, is 
better than art that makes you feel nothing? I, I would definitely agree that you want art to make you feel things, but the thing is that this art was not intending to make us feel that way. That's uh, true. <laughs> Down to the wire, deciding right now, I think my vote is going to Poseidon Adventure specifically because it does aspire to more than Hotel Transylvania 3 does. That's fair. I feel equally disgruntled about both films for different reasons, mm-hmm. and I think depending on like the direction of the wind at the time, I might change my vote, but I can also... I'm okay with Poseidon Adventure going ahead. Yeah. Like, if I was choosing a film based on what I would recommend watching more, I would honestly probably go with Hotel Transylvania 3, Mm -hmm. but that's to, like, normal people who don't watch a film a bunch of times in a row to prepare for a podcast. Right. Also, we are talking about movies on boats, and Poseidon Adventure is more on a boat than Hotel Transylvania 3 is. Yeah. So if we're looking at just the bare-bones qualifiers for being in the bracket to, to break the tie, Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, the Mike Knoll argument. The Mike Knoll argument, yeah. So I guess that means that uh, Hotel Transylvania 3 will have to end its vacation early, and the Poseidon Adventure will continue to shake the earth. Mm-hmm. What's up next week, then? Well, next week we are moving back over to the right side of the bracket, and we are going to be talking about Jaws mm-hmm. and Master and Commander. Ah, well, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, both of these are like high spectacle movies on boats. Mm-hmm. I'm also really sure that I fell asleep at some point during Master and Commander because I feel like I don't remember chunks of it. So I will rewatch it when I've had more caffeine. <laughs> if you want to catch that episode, feel free to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your podcasts. This has been the Being Angry About Bell Rosen podcast. Thanks for tuning in.